0: Hello and welcome back to New Books and Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lachlan Summers. I'm really excited today to be joined by Professor Hugh Raffles, Professor of Anthropology at the New School for Social Research and Director of the Graduate Institute for Design, Ethnography and Social Thought. Professor Raffles' essays have appeared in a wide variety of venues, spanning academic and public-facing platforms, including American Ethnologists, Public Culture, Cultural Anthropology, The New York Times, Cabinet and Orion. His previous monographs are In Amazonia, published in 2002, and Insectopedia, published in 2010. Professor Raffles is joining us today to discuss the Book of Unconformities, Speculations on Lost Time, published this year by Pantheon Books. Rather than try to summarize his immense book in this introduction, I'll just note that the New York Times labels it a dense dark star and among the most mysterious books the reviewer has ever read. Harper's calls it a dense associative time travelogue that compresses and folds chronologies like geological strata. And the Wall Street Journal describes it as a melange, a large chaotic mess composed of isolated fragments smeared together by tectonic forces. Hugh, thanks so much for spending time with us today.
1: Thanks Thanks so much for having me, Lachlan. I'm really happy to be here.
0: So to begin with, I wanna know how this book came about. You've gone from the co-production of Amazonian waterways to human insect entanglements, and now to deep time. How did you arrive here?
1: Yeah, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, the book took me an awful long time. And I think it ended up being, took about 10 years, I think, and it ended up being, you know, a very different book from what it, what it started out as. But, and I think when I, when I started it, I was still very much caught in my last book, which is a book about insects, and could only really imagine another book of the same type, which Identified an object and then took a fragmented approach to that object as a way of sort of producing something which was, you know, both holistic and not holistic at the same time, something like that. And then as the book as the book evolved, it it developed into into something that I now think of as, as quite different. But that's really I suppose that's really for readers to readers to say. Um, for me, I guess I was. You know, there's different kinds of origin stories that I that sort of constructed for myself retrospectively. I had this, I did have this idea for a while. At one time, I was, you know, I was forced to write a, uh, I was forced to write a, a research statement for my promotion a few years ago. And I came up with the idea that I was sort of writing this trilogy of books that responded to the famous Heideggerian thing that, you know, man is world-forming and animal is poor in world and a stone is worldless. Huh. And that way I could give it sort of a nice coherent, nice coherent narrative. <laughs> out. But I'm, not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure it's really true. But, but sometimes it was sort of interesting to think about it as that, you know, but taking a much more anthropological approach to the idea of what world was. So thinking of these objects and the kinds of lives and capacities that get, and narratives that get generated around them and that they generate and afford and the sort of, I guess, world in that sense that they're um, part of and are producing in specific kinds of ways. And also, I think that responded to something that I do believe in, I think, in terms of my own work, which is that I'm interested in in thinking through what would conventionally be thought of as philosophical questions, but thinking them through empirically mm-hmm. and in very, very concrete ways. So that doesn't really answer your question about how come it got to rocks and time. There's another, there's another version of how to answer that, which is that when I was doing the insect book, part of it was in China. And I wrote a piece about people who were training crickets to fight and working with crickets. And, you know, it was, mm. it was very fascinating research because people really had these close very intimate relationships with crickets and communicative relationships, you know. Well, some people did. And while I was doing that research, I met people who collected and traded in um, scholars' rocks, you know, as they're often called, you know, that people keep in their, you know, in their houses and sometimes... uh, you know, maybe on their desks or whatever. For some people, this is a very developed, sophisticated, sort of contemplative practice, mm. which also has all these, his, you know, has this sort of like history and distinction attached to it. And so through conversations with those people, I started to think about, and this is maybe my, my entry point into it, as these philosophical objects, both as sort of models for, models for a life in a Confucian sense, but then also for sort of like upright life, but then also these objects in which, You know, through certain meditative practices and contemplative practices, people's sense of self or people's sense of earthly physical being could dissolve and be transcended and move into different sorts of philosophical planes. So that was for me, I think, an introduction to thinking about what kinds of objects these could be and, and how sort of multivalent they were. You know, this is the kind of question you asked me where I could keep going for right. a while, because <laughs> I guess there's, you know, there's this other aspect which was at that time I, I wasn't really aware of it when I started the project, but quickly became aware that there's also this emerging literature. Which at the time, you know, ten years ago, was really around the object-oriented ontologists and people like Graham Harman, even Shaviro and people like that. Now I think that's really, I don't know if anybody's really talking about that literature anymore, but at <laughs> that time, I don't, time so. they, <laughs> right. I don't think so either. But at that time, they really were, and you know, a lot of it was caught in this question of whether you know the sort of withdrawnness of the object in a sort of Heideggerian sense or the you know the a sort of more Deleuzean sort of networked embedded dynamic moving sort of thing and you know so so at first I got very drawn into trying to think through that before then deciding that really there was just wasn't for me anyway a particularly interesting set of questions but you know at first that was sort of you know that was sort of the theoretical entry point right I guess
0: and, and so in terms of taking uh, like philosophical ideas and trying to examine them concretely, uh, it, as the title suggests, you take the, the geological concept of an unconformity and use it as a means to meditate on time and loss. Uh, what attracted you to this analytic?
1: The idea of an unconformity actually came relatively late. I thought a lot about geology. I was reading a lot of geology, to try to to try to think about that way of apprehending stones, and because immediately that I would say for me anyway, immediately I started thinking about stones, then and rocks, the question of time just was was just like instantly foregrounded. I mean, I, I do firmly believe in this, but but again, I, I always have to say, at least for me, when I when I whatever objects I'm working with really sort of like set a research agenda to some extent that you know at least they sort of enforce a kind of perspective on the way that I'm thinking about the project. Hmm. So in in this case, you know, very very quickly, questions of time just became really paramount in this in this work. And so, I, but I was also thinking because I was reading all this geology, I was thinking a lot in very sort of like associative and analogic terms hmm. between the ways that I would work historically and in a sort of more social science kind of modality, you know, or even in a more sort of humanities kind of um, modality, and the the sort of metaphors. And sort of speculative language, which is used in geology. So unconformities was a conceptually it was interesting, but also linguistically it was sort of interesting as well. Hmm. You know, it is this very concrete. It's a very literal metaphor. Hmm. There is a real gap, and then what happens with that gap? Because geology, as you know, and, and I started thinking about geology and archaeology, you know, both as you know very time dependent investigative practices. Hmm. So, and in both of them, one of the the aspects that became so interesting to me anyway was the was the level of speculation that's necessary in order to recreate in order just to do that work of recreation and an unconformity is the point is actually a point of you know it's a point of absence but it's the one that just it does get you know it's where it's where there's a gap in the in the in the geological record that's just like a hole mm. um basically and so what it gets filled with is just you know endless narrative People call upon whatever evidence there's available, but the evidence is generally you're talking often you're talking about really deep time and the evidence is pretty thin often or just requires just sort of like this heroic work of sort of like narrative creation and right, you know, and speculative speculative thinking. And that's just very interesting to me. And it corresponded to all kinds of all kinds of different historical and social mm-hmm. gaps where the same thing the same thing happens. And not just through research or by, by people who are writing about it, but just, just in in daily life the way that we just just fill these absences constantly so that that became a sort of I guess in a way a sort of master narrative for the for the book as a whole that that helped me direct some of these you know some of these stories as I went along.
0: One of the things I love about this analytic is that it permits thinking of, of absence as a material presence so the chapter Sandstone is a particularly good example. So it's set in the old red sandstone of Orkney in the Northern Isles of Scotland, but it's almost a biography of Odin's stone, a perforated eight-foot stone that stood in the region until it was blown up in 1814. But you know that after having been blown up, the part of Odin's stone that had the hole in it in fact remained and was repurposed as a pivot in a horse-powered grain mill, later discarded when these mills were superseded by oil-fired mills and then unwittingly destroyed in the 1960s by a farmer with a hammer. So this missing stone with a hole in it and the spaces it left when it went missing are all part of a story about how absence materializes, where absence is less the disappearance of something from the present into the past and more a permanent process of vanishing. So can you talk a little more about the story of Odin's Stone and how you use it to think through the region's Neolithic landscape?
1: I don't feel like I need to. I mean, <laughs> he did that <laughs> way better, <laughs> way better than I'd have been able to. Um, that was that was pretty much perfect. I mean, I, yeah, that's 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 a perfect way of describing that chapter. I, th- I think, I suppose all I'd add to that is that I don't know how to say this. I mean, you know, the stone then becomes an occasion for following, well, both getting drawn by the stone and following all the possibilities that it creates and, and openings it creates mm. and then there's sort of the the, uh, the narrative problem I guess becomes trying to figure out which of those are manageable when you start or how many of those are manageable in the, in the chapter mm. but one of the things that became really that that chapter really provoked for me I think was this question of the I guess I would say something like the enigmatic character of those monuments these ancient monuments mm. and then maybe of stone itself but just the the demand I suppose the demand that they place on anybody who comes in contact with them to make some sense out of them to maybe f- either fit them into you know fit them into some sort of like pre-existing discursive landscape there's a sort of also a demand a demand to or for many people they seem to make a demand to to open yourself up in an encounter with them hmm. and some of that i'm sure is tied is tied to you know like discourses of you know, all kinds of things that are sort of new agey and, mm. you know, um, earth mysteries and whatever that have just permeated the, the way we think about these things at all kinds of levels. Um, but some of it I want to say is to do with the force of the objects themselves and the force of the substance. Mm. Something that happened to me in spending so long time, such a long time writing the book and then just focused on, you know, stone both as, a, as an object and as a material was getting a sensitivity or an attunement, maybe, to the yeah. I want to say like the force of the substance, and I think that I think that happens to, with with any object that we that we spend time with. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's peculiar to stone, but each one also has its own, you know, its own its own character and its own specific demands, which is partly why it's so important to think, I guess, to think empirically and to think closely. Yeah, that sense of both like the enigmatic. A sort of like an enigmatic force, I think that became that became really interesting to me and important. And also, you know, because this is a, I mean, it doesn't exist, but because this was it anymore, but because this is a made object, although there's this sort of, you know, like there's a lot of unknowns about how it was made. I mean, you can track where, trace where, where it came from and how, how it was taken from the place it was made, place the stone was found to where it was erected you can you can so you can create a kind of biography of it as you said Mm. um but but for instance you know the question of whether it actually whether that hole was made in it or whether it was a stone that was found with a hole or anything like that there's no way of knowing anymore because you can't examine the stone but but there's a genre of stones with holes in them Mm. and those stones you know of ancient stones with holes in them and those stones have a whole set of stories and you know folk histories and oral histories associated with them about particular power that they have as, sort of, you know, there would be portals into other, into other dimensions. You know, like if you if you went through that hole. And these are these are, you know, this is a sort of this is a global phenomenon. So somebody like Mircea Eliade was very keen on tracking these across, you know, like, a, you know, geographically, uh, well, and across time. But they 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 were also sort of there was sort of like smaller things that couples would patrol through them, by you know, like. Putting a coin through them that from one to, one to the other through the hole, one on the you know one person standing on each side, and people had a lot of confidence in in those particular stones as um, curative, you know. So they had these very very sort of like material concrete practical applications as well for some people, and also then they had these real cosmic you know cosmic possibilities too. Very, I think it's very interesting, you know. Um,
0: yeah, the, the the cosmological possibilities of stone, and, and you mentioned uh, Marcel Aliari, and I wanted to, to ask a question about that because he's kind of an un, an unlikely and uncomfortable interlocutor for you. Um, but you you reference his concepts of the hierophany, like the the revelation in the world of the non-historical time of the sacred, and access mundi, or the yeah. the cosmological connection between earth and sky, like. Was it just the, the universality of perforated stones or what, what brought you to, to Moshe Eliade's work?
1: Oh, I know it, it, it was, it was very difficult. And yeah, I had to hold myself back from just, you know, going off in a rant about him for a few <laughs> times, you know, because I mean, I, I, I don't know, maybe people listening know that, you know, he, he was also, I mean, you know, he was really, regarded as the leading scholar of religions in, in that mm-hmm. sort of very, you know, middle European intellectual, Sort of global global scholar who would just sort of collate and amalgamate, you know, this enormous amount of erudition across, you know, across time and across, you know, across space. But he was also, you know, like, you know, like Heidegger, like, um, you know, several people, sure. um, Karl Schmidt, other people. Um, you know, he was an, he wasn't just a he wasn't just a, you know like a passive, right. a passive Nazi. <laughs> he was a, he was a, he was an active anti semite, active active fascist agitator Mm. and he was one of the people who was who was basically rescued by the the united states Mm. after the war after you know romania you know took a turn um where he was no longer welcome (laughs) and uh you know and then became an eminent eminent um, professor at the university of chicago Mm. celebrated for the rest of the rest of his career Mm. whilst he still continued to support you know fascist causes in right in um In Europe, so yeah, it's complicated figure. But you know, this is actually this is actually a habit of liberal or radical intellectuals to support these people and try to disengage their politics from their ideas, Mm -hmm. as if those things can be can be easily separated. But of course, there's a huge debate over around this, um, you know, and there's been an awful lot written about it. Not so much about Eliade, but about obviously particularly about Heidegger. Mm -hmm. But I was really interested in Eliade because. He's one of the few people that I that I've read who's written about you know about stones as, as a about stone objects and stone as a substance in this incredibly synthetic way. I mean, there are other people who've done it, but nobody has really done it with his his level of erudition and hubris, I guess. Um, and <laughs> and you know the. His books are full of, I mean, they're full of insights and they're full of really, you know, provocative ways of thinking about, of thinking about objects. But at the same time, they rely on, they're built on a set of, um, I get, they're built on a set of assumptions about social evolution and civilization and sort of intellectual hierarchies that are, you know, profoundly, I would guess I would profoundly disagree with. But they, they incorporate, they incorporate anthropological thinking and anthropological generalization and, you know, into this machine that, 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 that he has, you know, this sort of academic machine. And so there's a, on the one hand, I just want to just ignore it and dismiss it, you know, and say, this is just work, you know, this is work that I really just don't want to engage with at all. Mm-hmm. Yet on the other hand, I'd find that he would be saying, you know, as I said, he'd, he'd be often saying things that would just be, you know, very stimulating as ways to think about, you know, these these objects that say if I want to think about these stones and, and wanna to, want to work with an, an idea like they're enigmatic, then you're sort of immediately moving into a realm of mysticism that is that is open to the kinds of the kinds of generalization, ungrounded generalization that he 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 trafficked in mm. a lot as well. And at some of them sort of drawn to that. In the, in the sort of speculative mode and, you know, a kind of refusal to explain. I mean, he's not interested in refusal to explain, but for me that sort of enigmatic nature is about a sort of refusal, mm-hmm. you know, sort of um, deliberate intellectual analytic refusal. Mm-hmm. So, so I find it complicated working with him in the same way that it's very complicated to work with someone like, like Heidegger. And I guess what I was trying to think about was, well, okay, then, then how do you do that and at the same time acknowledge not the limitations of the, uh, these ideas but the possible implications of them and also and also just to open that up as a you know open up this question as a field of as a field of debate so they can't just be you know incorporated into in a in a sort of you know smooth way mm-hmm. into a set of arguments but they have to come with his personal history and their relationship to their relationship to fascism they have to enter into you know they can they have to travel across domains Into a different kind of politics and different sort of argument Mm -hmm. you know bringing that with them and i feel the same way about heidegger we shouldn't just be talking about you know heidegger and technology or heidegger Mm -hmm. and place or whatever it might be as if it's just you know the the sort of like free exchange and free realm of ideas that aren't grounded we wouldn't do that in other circumstances Mm -hmm. you know we would expect them to be to we know that they're they're like sticky you know but somehow certain there's certain kinds of thinkers who get this who get this pass and I think part of the way I was trying to write about it was to sort of like insist on on grounding on grounding that, but with some with, with the kind of ambivalence about it as well. Mm. I don't know if that if that's a helpful way of answering it. It's a problem, right? I, I kind of feel like these are this is a problem and it's like a problem that we haven't figured out how to how to deal with. And maybe we won't be able to, but but especially now, obviously, right? We can't treat fascism as historical. So we shouldn't treat fascist thinkers as historical either or as innocent. We 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 really have to face them. I think.
0: No, that's good, and I I, I know in. It was. It's, it felt uncomfortable when you were talking with him. And then I, I went to the end notes where you were talking about yourself, talking about him. And I think there's as much written in the end notes as there is, is in the book.
1: I think it's true. And, you know, that that note was originally in the main text. And then I thought it became, you know, it became too disruptive of the text where I didn't want it to be. So it went into yeah. the footnotes um, because I figured that, well, hopefully, you know, a bunch of people will read that anyway. And then, you know, but they'll have made the choice. So it will be like, you know, they're like, they're going that in a way you go to a footnote to be, you go there looking for a digression or for a something or for a disruption of something right. so you know so it's like a different experience you know <laughs>
0: that was that was a, that was a plan. <laughs> so, so the chapter of blubberstone kind of parallels odin stone's repeated reanimation and disappearance in which connecting histories of primitive accumulation leave traces throughout the landscape of sfarbath norway so you got walrus whales coal are all in the Norwegian landscape as remnants But blubberstone, as I understand it, is a term you invented. And it's not exactly a stone, but, you know, it's kind of, it's a fuel. It's like coal. It's a fuel. It has been viciously exploited. It's not a mineral, but it's somehow geological. Can you talk about blubberstone and how you use it to move through this landscape?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for asking about that. Yeah. I mean, so blubberstone is like the residue. It's like the historical residue of this history of whaling and you know intense history of whaling at this at this place mirrenburg on, on svalbard which was a, a dutch whaling station for for a while and then just disappeared and pretty much all that's left is this is this substance which is a concretion of the you know the whalers would went, render the whale blubber in these huge cauldrons and it would boil over the sides and they were generally cooking it on sometimes coal sometimes timber everything pretty much had to be imported there um, there was coal and svalbard which then becomes important in the story mm-hmm. but um and there was coal that you could collect and i think some of it was coal but some of it was actually coal they brought with them from europe mm-hmm. and you know there wasn't really any timber there either so you know fuel was a fuel was a real problem but what you've got left there is this this concretion that's a combination of of blubber and the sand from you know sand and pebbles from the beach and um the fuel that they the fuel that they use to cook the cook the blubber in. So, you know, it's um it's an obvious metaphor in some ways for the extractive industries that have then passed on and they've left this geological substance which is analogous to other kinds of geological substances like which are, you know big quotes non-natural. Um you know like um what is it Trinitite which is on the you know which was the, the residue of the nuclear explosions uh at um, Los Alamos and plastiglomerate, I think is what people are calling it, um, mm. which has shown up in shown up in Hawaii, um, which are you know like these mm. these um, combinations of of plastic and plastic and rock that have you know now mm. pretty much seem to be now pretty much everywhere. But so so you know, blubberstone was for me it was also a way narratively to open up the question of open up the question of stone and geology and to really make the point that i've been sort of trying to make through the book about both that these substances i guess exist both i would say independently of human life and completely wrapped up in human life as well you know the simultaneous have simultaneously have, have both characters and both identities and both um i don't want to say both geologies but sort of like both hmm, both you know, it's so hard, right? When you, I mean, you don't want to say both, both, both forms of life, but maybe both forms of being, something like that. Both forms of existence, maybe that would be that would be better. And the the story that I really wanted to tell in that chapter was was, or is this this, you know, the story of this um, intense extraction on Svalbard. Svalbard is a, is an incredible place because, so first of, first of all, it was a um, unoccupied archipelago. There weren't people there. Living there as in living there as in overwintering consistently until the twentieth century when when coal mining because coal mining made made that possible um before that it was mm. just since the sixteen early early seventeenth century I guess it was a it was a location for extraction mm. so first british dutch Basque a whole bunch then Danish a whole bunch of people went there and just 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 fished for whales. And um, for bowhead whales, and just extracted this huge, huge well, excuse me. First, they went for walruses when they, when they'd sort of like got on you know, pretty much run out of walruses, and they turned to whales, and sort of they figured out those, you know, whale blubber was just way more, way more economically viable. Then they turned to whales, um, you know, then after whales, they went through, they just sort of like went through, just went through one extracted product or possibility after another until um, they arrived at coal. But it also has this complex history of, of superpower competition because it's, you know, a, it was, now things are changing, but actually it's not unclear how they're changing because of, you know, sea ice opening in the Arctic. But it was, you know, also sort of the gateway to the gateway to the Russian Arctic. So it was geopolitically was extremely sensitive and important. So you had all this competition for sovereignty, but it has, a, it has an uncertain sovereignty. It became part of Norway, but... But still, you know, it's under this Svalbard Treaty, which, which means that anybody can extract resources. You just have to have a footprint there. So there are sort of, there, I think there are 46 right. or 48 signatures to the, to the Svalbard Treaty. And if you're a signatory, it means that your um, nationals can live there, work there, and extract from Svalbard. I think the most recent signatory was North Korea. Huh. But the only ones to really have a, like a, a significant footprint are Norway, which essentially means that NATO does and and Russia. So Russia has some mining, Russia has some mining, a couple of mining towns, settlements, and Norway has a town and a big, now mothballed, really, really, really expensive mining project, which actually was never really, never productive. So it's all, well, I was going to say there's not really any reason for people to be there except for the strategic reasons. I mean, that's not, I mean that isn't really true. I mean there are reasons that people either individually would want to be there, but geopolitically or even sort of industrially and in terms of exploitation of various kinds, there aren't really I think what has what kept while bad there has been first the extraction and then the geopolitics. And it's you know it's very it's very interesting. It's this it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's such an intense history of of extraction of various kinds that the whole thing is a symptom of global history.
0: I think at some point I've read uh it might be something that you've said or something that you're referencing someone else say, but it's to, it's to see the world in a stone. And this blubber stone that's not quite exactly a stone. All of this comes, uh, like it's uh, condensed into this stone, all of these histories. Yeah. You see it right there. Um, so it's a very remarkable piece of material.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's like, it's yeah, it's like history and time are just congealed in it or condensed in it. Yeah. As a narrative device, yep, it works like that, definitely yeah i was happy but also very disturbing actually you know that that, yeah. that residue is i find it extremely disturbing too one of the very interesting things about the place is that you know that there, there's a cultural relics law maintained by the by the governor's farbad, um where anything that was anything that humans were involved in bef- that before 1946 that's left some remains can't be touched mm. So, so the landscape also has this quality of being a um, sort of like this open, in a way, sort of open historical museum. So, you know, the, the, this is all kinds of things. There's hunting cabins, mining, you know, mining camps, places like um, Smirnberg, which was a, you know, whaling, you know, a whaling center. And if you, if you travel around the archipelago, there were just all these residues. So like, for instance, some Nazi soldiers went there in 1943, I think, and You know, did you know? Left a a swastika out of um, they made a swastika out of out of big stones on the beach, on on a beach, um, and that's still there. You can't touch it. There are uh, weather stations that were really important in the in the Second World War, and those are just left. But everything is, but nothing's maintained. So it's all just slowly decaying and sliding into the sliding into the water, or getting overrun by animals of one kind or another. Or you know, so it has this sort of elegiate quality to it, but two different things. I mean, but, but it's really like an analogy to this history of extraction.
0: This is one of the things I find, uh, this is one of the reasons I find unconformity such an interesting analytic because it, it's marking absence in, in this kind of enduringly material way, but it also marks a process in which geological strata that would otherwise be unrelated have come together, where the, the process of loss produces connection. Uh, And so the first chapter, Marble, detailing the colonization of what's currently New York is is a really key example. But one really striking demonstration of this is in the chapter called Iron, which is a really incredible story, beginning with the peculiar iron brought to what's now Greenland by meteors, which was historically gathered and used by Inuit, and ends with anthropology's own Franz Boas. And so this is like noteworthy for folks interested in the history of U.S. museums and anthropology as a discipline, but... Foregrounding loss as also unlikely connection permits you to talk about geology and even unearthly geology because we're talking about meteors. Uh, it permits you to talk about geology without losing track of the, the individual lives that are built around it. So could you walk us through some of the moments in this chapter and how these minerals and the people around them became caught up in global commercial and museological uh, networks? Well,
1: that's a great question. Um, let me first lay out lay out the maybe lay out the story, which I'm sure some people will know. But basically what happened was that Robert Peary, who was a ver who at, you know, at the end of the sort of in the end of the 19th, early 20th century, was a was a huge figure in the in the US, an ar- Arctic explorer, adventurer, self-promoter, but also but, you know, very much a, not a very attractive person. And some but somebody somebody who is very skilled at getting wealthy patrons to give him money and to sort of assemble this this um club around him of people who were committed to to basically white masculine exploration. Mm-hmm. And he was very, very upfront about about that as his as his project. Mm-hmm. And he was but you know this is where it gets a little complicated because he he you know at the time, so we're talking about I guess the 1890s, you know, this is this is a time when, you know, as anthropology was emerging primarily at that point in museums, mm. people were very much in a anthropologists were very much in a salvage mode. Mm. I mean, they were seeing they were seeing, you know, particularly in the US, they were seeing, you know, Native Americans under American Indians under this enormous pressure. Um, people weren't, you know, because of the Indian codes and a bunch of other things. People weren't able to speak their languages, they weren't able to, you know, ma- you know, have their have their objects that were Im- important to them, ritual objects and other kinds of other kinds of objects. They weren't allowed to have those um visible. You had the the Indian police, you had Indian courts, you had all kinds of all kinds of like a this extremely repressive apparatus. Mm. Um people have written, you know, and this anthropologist has obviously written an awful lot about it. someone like Lee Baker has done just excellent work on this. So Boris and Boas at the museum was and you can look in the museum archives are, are very fascinating in this period to see how Boas and other, other other anthropologists working there were constantly trying to get you know trying to get people to go out and get stuff and bring stuff back and to you know like buy it off you know buy it off different reservations and different people and make these connections mm-hmm. and do this so they also had people all over the world who were doing this and it was much like the in some ways it was very like the nineteenth the sort of earlier mid 19th century natural history collectors that they would the museums sort of acted as as agents so they would make requests for whatever it might be they would say you know our collection is lacking a such and such lacking a hide a canoe or lacking a mm. you know whatever it might be and um, and Boas of course you know was was deeply involved in this and I think in a in a he also well, he also had a because of because his, his initial field work was Baffin Bay, where he initially did his field work and that, that continued to be very important for him throughout his throughout his life and, and career. And you know, many people who've who've written about that. And if you go if you do go back and look at the documents from that period, it, it seems to be a moment where he had this sort of a transition, you know, where where he started thinking of um environment in a much broader sense, for instance, and and developed this sort of a um you know, I, I'm reluctant to say like cultural relativism because it's so you know it's so it's got so much freight to it now. But he but he certainly started thinking in in more sort of like horizontal ways about the people who he lived with and stayed with and and and, and would write. You know, there's, there's many passages in the in the letters that he sent back where he starts to place European and culture and life in in sort of negative relief to the experience he was having in in Baffin Bay. So Kiri he was closely associated with the museum because he were, he had established these sponsors around him who were who were museum people museum donors um museum officials and um he he got backing personal backing from Jessup who was the became the president of the museum and who was a, a very interesting person sorry this story is getting so big <laughs> i haven't even got to the question <laughs> yet I feel like it's okay it's huge, huge shaggy dog story i'm telling you. <laughs> but there's so many the, the parts of it are really interesting because because it all sort of fits together in this moment. So like, like Morris Jessup was a, a philanthropist, as well as being becoming president of the museum, he was a philanthropist and the underwriter of this, this huge project, the Northwest, which is a seven-year project that museum scientists um, undertook to basically document the entire Northwest of the United States. Um, it's called the Jessup, Jessup Expedition. And that was part of, I mean, that was also all tied up with trying to understand migration and diffusion and these, these kinds of things. But but Jessup was also a philanthropist of a certain kind. You know, he was very he was he was of a sort of he was very tied to Booker T. Washington and this uh, you know on racial uplift. And he gave money to the Hampton Institute and to to for industrial training and all this all this kind of stuff. He supported like the Five Points Project in in New York. He had this whole like range of range of philanthropic sort of uplift projects, you know, all of a, all of a certain type. But his main his main interest actually, his main love was was the Museum of Natural History. So one of the things that you see is the way that natural sort of natural history object cuts across all different kinds of objects, yeah. cuts across yeah. race, cuts across certainly cuts across masculinity, um, but also collecting of different kinds, you know, and they all sort of get pulled into the same the same sort of like intellectual grinder yeah. and. Boas is sort of developing, I think, at this time. But he, but Peary was like their, he was like their Arctic guy. Mm. You know, he was the person he would go off, and he he also had this this scam going with the museum, where he would, Mm. he would sell, he would bring stuff back, so that the museum would act as this sort of like, um, almost like as a fence, you know, for his for the stuff that he would bring back from the Arctic, and that he would then resell Mm. for a profit. It was there was all kinds of like unsavory stuff going on, but so Boas asked Peary. Piri told him wow. he was going back the following year back to Northwest Greenland. And Boris said, Will you, it would be great if you could bring back one adult male in Upton speaker just for the summer, you know, so that we could talk to him, find out everything about that we need to know about life there because, you know, mm. like people in North America, all these people are disappearing under the pressures of colonialism so piri went and piri had at this by this point he knew everybody these are these are small communities they're probably like 200 people in all living in maybe four or five locations piri knew all of them because many of the people men and women all worked for him one way or another and he was a major source of income for these communities and um Mm. so he arranged that but instead of because he was the kind of person he was instead of bringing back one person he brought six people back Mm. And a part of the story that's often missing is that, you know, people who lived in those areas were very, very accustomed to traveling and very accustomed, I mean, long distance traveling and being very, very independent and, you know, innovation and, you know, making stuff out of nothing and just, you know, succeeding in living under these extremely harsh conditions. So I think one of the things that seems clear, both from talking to people there and from just reading Into the accounts that you can that you get from this um, episode, and also the interviews that one of the people who came back gave to newspapers, is that people were really interested in coming back. So they didn't come back. They didn't come back. It wasn't like they were kidnapped, as many other people had been in previous centuries. They came back with a genuine, to some extent anyway, with a genuine interest to see what it was what it was like and what Mm -hmm. you know what New York was like. You know, like many of us come to New York because we want to know what it's right. like, you know, and I think these people were sort of similar, you know, in many ways. And also, you know, Perry told them they would just come for, you know, they'd come for a summer and then he'd bring them back and it would be, you know, it would be exciting and interesting. And then when they came back, you know, of course, then when they came back, they'd have had a closer relationship with him and all the resources that he had to offer. Maybe they would have had other connections which gave them other resources as well. So there were, there were good pragmatic reasons to do it as well as more sort of other kinds of reasons. And there was a history, not necessarily from this place, but there was a history th- from Greenland and from the Arctic in general, of people having done that and then making lives, successful lives, enhanced lives after having done that. I mean, there were other kinds of stories too, but there was a lot of that. But when these people came, six people showed up, um, four adults, a sort of young, I think a 12, 13-year-old girl, and this young boy, Minik who was like seven or eight, I think, at the time. The museum had no idea what to do with them. They weren't expecting six people. And they put them in a basement, an overheated basement. And period made it a huge thing. So there were thousands of people who came to meet his ship when it arrived Mm. to see the meteorites and to see, and it was sort of like a carnival atmosphere and everything. And then he took people to the museum and he took the meteorites to um, Brooklyn Navy Yard. And within a few weeks, really, or a couple of months, four out of the six people had died. One of them managed to get back to Greenland and then one of them stayed in the U.S. He Mm. went back to, this was the young boy, he went back a few years later, went back to Greenland for a while, couldn't really settle worked with some, I don't know what you call them, I guess, explorers. He came back, came back to New York, tried to create interest in the press, but it didn't really work. Whereas before, he'd successfully done that. And there was a lot of press outrage about what was happening to these people um, and the way they were treated by the museum and by Peary. And I think that's a very interesting part of it, because part of the way these stories are often told these days, I mean, both with ORAS and with, with the museum, is that, well, at the time, this was just the way that things were done. And, you know, nobody knew any better. That's just the way that people operate. And of course, you know, we're so much more enlightened now, and we wouldn't do things like that, which is, you know, one question, because maybe we would just in not quite exactly the same ways, or maybe we do. But it was also the case that at the time, there was serious public debate about what was happening to people and the ways they were being treated and whether they should be treated like this. And there were other model, models for doing it as well. So it's really disingenuous to say that, you know, this was a difficult, historic, different historical moment or something, you know, which we hear across the board around all kinds right. of different mm. issues, you know. So eventually, I mean, very, very long story short, but eventually <laughs> in, <laughs> in 19, I guess, 1993 or 1997, sorry, I'm not clear on the date, Um, under pressure, the museum repatriated the bodies of, or the skeletons, because the skeletons had been flensed, mm. and they repatriated the bodies to um, back to it wasn't to the community they come from, because that community no longer existed, because people have been evicted from there. But to the to where the descendants of that community now were living, there was a ceremony, and then are buried in that cemetery. Yeah, so that was that's sort of the outline the outline of the story, um, which is why it's a very long chapter as well, because it's such. a... <laughs> <laughs> it's such a
0: long story. It's a fascinating story, though. Yeah, it is. It,
1: it is. And, and I feel like the resonances are still there because, you know, the whole question of repatriation and restitution is so critically important right now, you know, both in museums but in anthropology, in terms of sort of like what a decolonial anthropology can look like and what it should look mm-hmm. like. So, in a way, I mean, maybe all the chapters are like this, but to me, this was another sort of like condensation of a lot of questions that are really central right now mm. and so even though quite a bit of the, that chapter is is centered in Greenland and sited in Greenland I feel that what it's really about is about the museums the museum and collecting and practices of exploration and also the sort of you know the the erasure and displacement of those histories from from you know from the way that these objects now exist and are you know are located
0: this is one thing that I find really fascinating about this book in that The unconformities kind of parallel analytics of connection and loss, I feel like they kind of invert the way anthropology talks about geology at the moment. I I feel like I read folks who are kind of maybe taking a broader, more sped up view of deep time in order to see rocks and continental plates as agents and demonstrate that geological is uh, is lively rather than inert. Uh, Or as you put it, even the most solid and ancient and elemental materials are as lively, capricious, willful, and indifferent as time itself. But you make a really interesting pivot here in that you seem to be saying yes that's true but the massive temporal lens that frames geology as lively will also render humans and living things as just matter so i feel like that chapter iron is is an effort to kind of grapple with how to kind of talk about this long scale without losing sight of people
1: no that that's that's a very good way to put it and okay so i first started thinking about it in those terms um, not through geology, but through this through this parallel, um, and this goes back to some of the work I talked about in at the beginning about China and is this parallel by um, Zhuangzi, the the Daoist you know sage from like 2,500 years ago. And this is this is an aside actually, but I'll get back. But this is a smaller aside, which is that one of the things that's very fascinating to me anyway about about Zhuangzi is the way that the way that these stories are written, because they they force you into the disorienting experience of the reasoning mm. and of the story, and that's something which which I feel like I've learned from that, and tried to try to also create through these these kinds of narratives and sort of very expansive stories to sort of like create a sort of an experiential environment, and so that as much of as much if you like as much of the understanding or knowledge comes through you know the the sort of psychic experiences, the cosmic mm. as the cognitive experience or the cognitive practice, you know. Anyway, that's that's sort of an the side. But in this in this story, Jangta's wife has died, and the other person who I can't remember um, shows up and is and is just outraged because is sitting there and he's not, you know, he's he doesn't seem to be upset. He actually seems to be happy. He's like doing stuff and sort of I can't remember what he's doing, but he's like singing and something sitting in his sitting in his yard and he's like mm-hmm. singing and you know whatever. And so this other character just like berates him. And it's like, you know, you know, you know, what is wrong with you? Show some decorum, you know, your wife dies. You should be in mourning. You should be like being respectful. And Zhuangzi's response is that, like, well, yeah. And but you know, don't be so superficial as to imagine that I'm not in mourning. But also, you know, be more sophisticated about this, basically, <laughs> which is sort of how it often goes. Um, he says, you know, yes, of course she's died. And yes, as a person, I'm completely devastated. But... I'm also, you know, but this this is happening in two realms because at the same time as she's dying, I also know that she is moved into this other, you know, circulation, if you like, right? She's moved into this other sphere. So these two things are happening simultaneously and they're happening different cosmic levels, different temporal levels. And of course, there's an absence which I can never, you know, which can never be replaced and which is just that, you know, overwhelming sense of loss which comes with that. But also... There's this other level on which there's a completely different experience and reality associated with that. so that's sort of you know that's sort of bifurcated so it's very simple, and at some level it's kind of banal, but I think it's also kind of profound that these things exist these things exist simultaneously and and in order to make any sense of it at all, you have to it's not like you have to sort of like acknowledge bifurcated thinking. you have to like occupy that somehow occupy that space mm-hmm. that these things actually do happen simultaneously that we actually do live in multiple temporalities multiple forms of and it's, not like, it's not really an ontological i don't want to make it as an ontological <laughs> example a- argument you know it's more like it's more like <laughs> it's more like a st- i mean i guess for me it's more like a statement of fact yeah. you know you have you you know you sort of have deep time and there is a there's a sort of like scalar temporal issue there and these things you know like rocks are absolutely you know fixed at one level because we only live for whatever it might be, you know, between mm. zero and a hundred years or whatever. You know, within that scale, it's meaningless unless mm. you're talking about like catastrophes. But on, the, but on the other hand, we also, not as, you know, like individual liberal subjects or anything, but we also in some form also exist, you know, across and perhaps outside time. We don't know in the same, you know, because we also move as, you know, molecules and minerals and, and whatever through these substances. There is sort of, this mm. sort of, you know, cosmic unity. So I'm quite comfortable with that and trying to think about that, sort of trying to think about that narratively as well. Mm. And, and, you know, you can, of course, with all this stuff, you can, like, create genealogies of it and sort of, like, disenchant it and deconstruct these ideas as being sort of, like, historically specific and, and whatever, but I don't know that we always want to do that and just, like, be constantly disenchanted. Mm. I think maybe sometimes we just want to try to, like, accept some sort of spaces that are sort of imponderable Mm. And just be present in them and see what emerges out of that as a mm. way to make sense of things.
0: So throughout the book, you're showing that, deep, uh, that time is immeasurably deep, but you also note that it can be obscenely shallow. And so you're weaving together deep time and human time in this wonderful way. But there are moments in which like, deep time immediately happens. One example is in the chapter Magnetite, which focuses on Surtsi, an island in southern Iceland, which formed in the 1960s during a volcanic eruption. Alongside the southern island itself, the chapter discusses how locals position its unexpected appearance alongside other events throughout history. Can you tell us the story of Surtsey and its position in the imagination of people that suddenly found themselves living next to it?
1: Okay, so you probably want to don't want to include this bit as well because really, um, the chapter is about um, the Westman Islands and about Hemai. Um, which is the one where the which is the one where the volcano was. Right. So Circe was sort of like you know it was a little bit off there, and people could see it, and it sort of like prefigured it. Huh. So it's really interesting. I hadn't you know until you said that actually I hadn't thought of it like that, because in a way it was like a an omen or something, you know, because there'd been there'd been no you know Circe just like appeared out of nowhere out of the sea one day pretty mm-hmm. much, and you know kept kept erupting for a couple of years mm-hmm. I think, and then was slowly reclaimed by the, by the right. ocean. So the Westman Islands are sort of like a series of archipelagos off southern Iceland. The largest one is Vesmania. I mean, I'm not saying it in any <laughs> way that makes sense to anybody. Um, but anyway, and the town on there is Heimai. And Heimai is, it was a, basically a fishing town. You know, and all the islands are volcanic there because, you know, they're on the, the middle Atlantic ridge, which, you know, runs across, runs right through Iceland. Um, you know, they're basically like small eruptions from the mid-Atlantic ridge that happened, you know, way back. Mm -hmm. Um, And the volcano on Hemi had been dormant for thousands of years. And then basically one day it just erupted Mm -hmm. at like three o'clock in the morning. And it was a town of, you know, I might have the details wrong, but it was a town of 5,000 people. And by completely by chance, there'd been a storm the night before and the whole fishing fleet had come back. And so they were able to evacuate everybody from the island pretty much overnight, but certainly within twenty-four hours. And then people some people stayed and some people went back just to help try to protect buildings and clear up and stuff like this. But the eruption went on for quite a long time. And it was a it was a huge thing because, you know, there are eruptions all the time in Iceland, but not very much of Iceland is um is actually populated. And there's very rarely so even though you've had like, you know, huge number of eruptions, there's been very low number of direct deaths from the from the eruptions Mm. but this was very very unusual because it was in a inhabited inhabited area and also because you know it's the age of television and film and so everybody was really aware of what what went on and it was so it was a it was a it was globally reported so yeah the the so the story is a there's a heroic story of the evacuation and how people managed to keep the harbour open because if the harbour had closed it was a sheltered harbour. If the harbour had closed, the fishing fleet would have been that was in the harbour would have been lost. But also people wouldn't have been able to use it as a fishing centre anymore. So everybody would have had to have, have left mm. and just, you know, gone and lived somewhere else on the on the mainland or, you know, and just dispersed. So it was a very, very, very dramatic train, yeah. you know, story of how to of how to keep how to keep the harbour open. People successfully did that by actually inventing technology to do that. So there's a very, you know, sort of important story for people about how that ha- and actually for Iceland as a mm. whole, about how that happened. It, I first heard about this from, from my friend Gisli Palson, who's a you know Icelandic anthropologist, who's actually written a book about his experience, because he grew up there. He he'd left, he was in Manchester, but went back, I think immediately after the eruption. Um, and he's written a book, which is out in Icelandic, and is just, just about, I think, to come out in, in translation in English. About, about the eruption and about and also thinking about that and mm. thinking about what that means for thinking about um, nature and as uh, sort of you know theoretical ideas of natural becoming, and, and also in relation to the anthrop- anthropocene. It was extremely interesting, extremely interesting. and I, and I think mm. you know very, very different, very, very different version of this from, from mine, but on the other hand, probably. They'd be really. I think they'd probably be very. I mean, maybe I'm flattering myself, but I think they'd be very interesting to read, to read together. You know.
0: No, I bet mm-hmm.
1: But the experience and the history of the of the eruption is really, really present still in in the West Midlands. You know, the lava is still there. I mean, you can still see it everywhere. And the the town had to move. Part of the town was destroyed, so it had to sort of move, and a new part was rebuilt and they're in the process of, I don't know what's happened to it now with COVID, but I don't think think only a piece of it had opened, but they're in the process of opening a a sort of, like a lava museum, but it would be using parts of the town which were buried. Hmm. I mean, really, I think it was an intense trauma for people there. People left, many of the people who left just weren't able to go back because, the, and, I, and, I, and I imagine you've, you've had similar, you know, similar conversations with people in Mexico City, but, but once there's, I think once, once the earth stops being solid and starts feeling unpredictable, then your whole existential relationship with the place, the fixity of the earth, or a particular kind of fixity, right? the, the reliability of the earth just goes or changes. Mm. The eruption is very, very present. As soon as you arrive, it's present in the landscape, present in, like, physically present, but also everybody you talk to has, I mean, certainly people who are in, I guess now actually it's 1973, so people would have to be in their 50s. But people younger also have the experience because it's also, because it's also present, so it's continued, you know. And also there's a sort of, um, there's like an aftershock which continues, so people would tell me about, I don't mean like a physical aftershock, but people would tell me about when things happened, which was surprising then it would immediately flash them back to the experience of the earthquake. I mean, this is the other thing about, I mean, you know, you you said that about time being deep and also shallow. I think time is, you know, yeah, I mean, time is, you know, impossible to understand in its depth, but it's also impossible to understand in its immediacy. You know, like if, you know, like if somebody suddenly dies or something, mm. or if there's a, you know something some huge geological shock or, or anything you know i mean it's very very common in, in people's experience to have some experience like that at some point in some point in your life um, maybe repeated and so many people live under situations where it's almost almost normal to have these kinds of random violence right you know I don't, I don't know if you're if that's you know we're thinking about earthquakes if you if that makes sense to you
0: oh completely yeah completely um the loss of faith in the, the fixity of the earth or is kind of it's it becomes less permanent, or it becomes something like impermanent. Yeah, part of my research is like how long that feeling persists, and how it shapes people's politics, um, how they agitate. Mm-hmm. But in Magnetite, you talk about experiencing this directly yourself, um, experiencing an earthquake. I think you said in Japan and you write, I realized then that something happens to space in an earthquake because in that moment we were all together, suspended inside the thrust of energy coming through the earth, all together in an unstable and intimate energy space, a space filled with the fact and possibility, not just of mortality, but of imminent death. Something happens to time in that space, too. Time breaks, it suspends in two senses of the English word, slowing to almost zero and leaving you actually hanging like particulate spun out of liquid, no longer grounded because the ground is no longer the ground, no longer balanced because there's no longer a spatial matrix to which your senses orient. Uh, Can you unpack this experience? Because when people talk about deep time and stuff, they often talk. The, the famous ideas of vertigo of over a big kind of abyss of time, and you're talking about uh, an earthquake suspending you, kind of over yeah. that abyss to a certain extent. Oh, that's
1: interesting. Yeah, and I suppose I did think of it sort of as a kind of vertigo. And you know, you can probably tell I love that W.G. Siebel's book, Vertigo, as well, because it, you know, where he, he's really he's really doing that, right, working across these different these different domains and just making them making them sort of cohabit. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? I mean, like you can put things together. Without having to resolve them, I think that's you know that's the kind of work I suppose that I am most attracted to. Mm. That was so that 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 statement for me was a sort of empirical statement because what happened was, and I was actually in two two quite large earthquakes, although they weren't large in the sense. I mean, they were large for me. They were sort of like I think one was like five point four, and one was you know they were big, but they weren't, but they weren't in terms of damage. There wasn't an awful lot of damage, and they weren't you know like disastrous. But you know I. Felt this shaking. I'd lived in, you know, I lived in California, so I was used to sort of like small earthquakes, Mm -hmm. you know, like tremors. So I went to the window, looked out, and there were people. There's an office building, a tall office building across the way, and that was when I realized that it was an earthquake because everybody was responding. There were It was full of people in the office, and they were all doing the things which I sort of knew people would do in an earthquake. You know, they were like standing in a certain way, and they were just like, it was, it was like, it was like the the frame had frozen. You know, it was like, it was literally like suspension. Mm. And like I, I write in that bit, I mean, then I realized I was doing exactly the same thing. It, it was like it had enforced this behavior on us. So, so one of the things that I felt very strongly was that it was a little like we were caught in this, in this frame for as long as it last, lasted. It was very cinematic in that way. You know, so the imagery for me was very cinematic. It was mm. Like everything stopped, you know? And, and it was all about waiting because it's this moment of you know like radical uncertainty you, you just you don't know if this is going to be the last thing you ever do and the last you don't know if this building is about to go and that's just it and you can see that that's everybody else is like in that same space it's, it's I mean I think we're sometimes in those kind of situations but not often like really untethered in that way you know and, and, and I think in some way you're like outside time it's like time in any in any subjective sense has just stops and you're just in this space of I guess it's it's not like you're you're waiting although you sort of are waiting but it's just like you've stopped and the other things are happening and you have absolutely no control over them at all so the earthquake was for me was really really important I mean it also happened around the time that I'd you know that I also that I write about in the book because it sort of organizes it where I'd had this experience of um personal loss because two of my sisters had died and I'd had the same I don't say this in there but I had the same experience that when the second of my sisters died I felt like the challenge at that point was actually somehow to stay alive like death became it was like death was the norm to mm-hmm. die was the norm because it was so easy it's like all you mm-hmm. had. I mean I was in the city at the time all you had to do was like walk in front of a car or like fall off a building but here you know it's like all your effort had to go mm-hmm. on this other thing which was actually doing all those things that would keep you alive. You know, it's like the opposite of life. Normally, it would be like it would be an effort. You know, there'd have to be some kind of effort involved in, in dying unless it was like some sort of freak accident. You know, and there's always that. There's always the caveat that, you know, there are plenty of people who do live in that situation where that's like a normality. But for, for someone like me anyway, that was a complete inversion. So it was the same thing but different. You know, that uncertainty was really there. But it was, in this case, it was like completely, you know, with an earthquake, it's like completely out of your... Completely out of your hands, so you're just like waiting. It's not like you could. It's not like you could do anything to prevent what was going to happen. There's nothing, nothing at all you could do. That's that's a that's a radical, that's a like a radical situation of being.
0: Uh, yeah, a lot of folks I talk to here in Mexico City say similar things, and they. I'm really interested in this relationship between geology and time, and I want to ask you a question about it. But it's a very obtuse question, and it requires like me to say <laughs> a whole bunch of weird things. But like, so I research an earthquake you know, 2017 happening on the anniversary of 1985. So I I know people who, when the earthquake struck, ran back to the apartment they live in and ran to the apartment they lived in in 1985. So the the two years just slammed together. Um, But on that, so it's as if like the earthquake destroyed time, it disappeared. But on the other hand, you know, the earthquake revealed a whole bunch of archaeological artifacts. So it's as if it, by producing history, produced time. And so I'm really interested in this. And I, I think like, say, Thomas Burnett's sacred theory of the earth, the the catastrophist theory of time where the earth goes from paradise to flood to fire back to paradise. Like time is is cyclical and the earth does it, right? Um, But Charles Lyell's uh, uniformity theory, uh, everything is kind of happening with gradual laws and processes and rates. So the, the planetary cycle goes into the rock cycle, igneous metamorphic sedimentary, internalizing it. Uh, so that kind of internalization places rocks in a, in a secular view wow. of time. So this is a really obtuse question, but like, what is this relationship between geology and time?
1: Oh, God, I know. I mean, and I have no idea how to answer it. I mean, I can't answer that.
0: But, but, but it's just... <laughs> but it's Come on, you. <laughs> too
1: too bad. <better. laughs> what you think you're here for? Yeah, so, okay, so for me, okay, this is how I think stuff like this. I think this is a problem. I think of this as like... A generator of ideas and thoughts, I don't think it's something that you're ever gonna or whatever you necessarily want to resolve into a paragraph or a sentence this is this is this is one of those things that is you know is is perpetual you know it's not it's a but that but that so those are the and those are the best things you know the things that you the things that will just provoke endlessly interesting speculations. I mean, what they do is they force you to spec... It, they force you to speculation. I mean, that's what happened with this book, right? I mean, that's the problem in some ways of the book. And the solution is just like the endless replication of different stories, mm-hmm. all of which offer some version of a way to get through that problem, I think. But it is... It's, I agree with you. It's, it's the problem. And it's the... You know, that relationship between uniformity and, and catastrophism, you know, gradualism and catastrophism. I mean and the actually the refusal to choose between them Mm. but just but just being willing to to accept their or to live with i mean maybe not them in exactly those certainly not in their historical form Mm -hmm. but just as a but you know as temporal possibilities let's say or as material possibilities that those that those things coincide and cohabit and yeah, like I think I've said a few times, but you don't need to, you don't need to resolve them, and that isn't a that's not like a that's a that I would say that's a principled refusal. It's not just like mm-hmm. a oh we don't know, you, you know you can hold these things in tension and see what happens as they as they move into different configurations, mm-hmm. and that every like ethnographic moment that you have is like a different configuration of the of the problem that you're concerned with. Now. This is a particular kind of ethnography, and particular kind of thought, because sometimes you want a really instrumental kind of thought. It's like you have a problem and you want to solve it because it needs solving. But I think these are different kinds of problems. Mm. You know, I think these are philosophical problems that you can think about empirically and actually think about them better. For me, better. You think about them better empirically than you do um, philosophically, mm. I think. And then what they do is they, like, generate different relationships to the, to the problem. And to the material, and to the situation. So, so for me, writing, and like writing a book like this, isn't a process of providing explanation or even of understanding. It's a question of opening up a field and asking people to inhabit it and see what happens when they enter it. Mm-hmm. You know, so the experience is it's supposed to be like a experience of being inside it, and being inside the problems and seeing what can happen and what they look what they look like. That would be the sort of ideal reading for me.
0: No, this is really good. Uh, Like, I completely agree. And um, I'm glad I asked this question because and it got to this kind of literary answer, because like the last question I want to ask is like, who were you reading to help you write this? Because it, it there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of all this extra work going in using some of the language that you're talking about in your previous answer. And I, I'm so happy you mentioned Seabold because I, I could feel Seabold here. And maybe the title the Book of Unconformities is a nod to Jorge Luis Borges' uh, The Book of Sand. Um, and so I'm wondering like what, what literature was helping you when, you when you were imagining this book?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I, I have mostly read fiction for a long time now. And there are certain people who've been really important to me. Jamaican Caden Sabald and Roberto Bologno maybe have been probably the key people for me the last, last few years. Patrick Modiano, I was obsessed with Patrick Modiano for a long time, and I read everything he'd written in English and even a couple of things in French, which isn't easy which isn't easy for me. Um, you know, because he's really a, he's really somebody who is totally preoccupied with this this question of the temporal collapse and moving across and and you know it's like an obsession because he writes the same book like like 70 times you know or at least 40 times it's like the same book because it's, it's it's this problem that he just cannot cannot get to grips with and, and as it, and, it, and as it goes on he sort of stops trying to solve it so it's really fascinating to mm. so i think i got a lot from that you know like watching his different different attempts so then you know narrative becomes so important because mm. The solution is a narrative problem, or the non-solution is a narrative problem. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, in a way, it's exa- or conceptually, it's sort of exhausted. So all you can do is sort of make it. Yes, yeah, Sajah Hartman's book was really that had a. I, I really like that a lot you know, the Wayward Women book. That raises for me that raises an awful lot of problems about the. I guess legitimacy. You know, would she call it critical fabulation? I think she calls it. But you know, this the 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 filling in these spaces. So that was really. I was already working on that, but it was very helpful to think think through that with the way that she does that. And again, extremely detailed and really trying to sort of like recreate, recreate these worlds and make a sort of like make a case through their persuasiveness as real worlds, I think. You know, that 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 seems seemed like a really interesting and powerful strategy to me. And so I, I found that very impressive. John Keene does something similar in in counter narratives. These extremely detailed historical historical recreations, but but recreating them to tell a different story of a story that you might sort of know the outlines of. Right. Really, really, really exceptionally good book, I think. And then for Belano, mm. for it's sort of like a kind of a kind of freedom of experiment. And again, he's somebody right who who's always revisiting the same thing. Mm-hmm. Always got this problem that he can't I think a lot of a lot of writers are like that. Uh, and I, I find that very fascinating that kind of obsessive attempt to like excavate this thing and find something that that will just like stop you having to do it anymore i think
0: well on the topic of obsessing over things i want to thank you for being so generous with your afternoon uh i I really loved your book i think it's wonderful uh, and i'm so grateful that you could come and, and talk with me about it
1: Oh, well, thank you very much. And it's been a real pleasure talking to you too. And I'm sorry if it's left you with so much stuff that it's going to take you forever to get get the thing out of it.